Hey guys, welcome to Dark Vale. We're your hosts, John and Tori. Dark Vale is a podcast that discusses the darker side of life. We are not professionals on any of the topics we discuss. We do as much research as we can, and we do try to be as accurate as possible. However, no one is perfect, and neither are we. Because we're discussing the darker side of things, this podcast is best listened to by a mature audience. So sit back and get ready to podcast and chill! Hey guys, welcome to Dark Vale, and welcome to episode... 18. 18. We did it. We did do it. We're uh, getting very close to the big 20. Yes. That's exciting. Uh, my name is John. And my name is Tori. And today, I I looked up some of the most brutal crimes that have happened around the world. And I found a short little list on BuzzFeed that only consisted of 19. That's short? Yep. I know that's an inside joke because you're looking at me for my response. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always find the largest lists of things. Um, but I went through it and I found... The three most interesting ones of it, and uh, I looked them up on Wikipedia, and they were actually very interesting and quite brutal, uh, uh, some of them. So, okay, so the first crime article is, comes from Russia. It's about uh, a lady uh, by the name of Tamara Mitrofanova. Samsonova, which to me sounds like a very Russian name. <laughs> you did a very good job at uh, saying it. <laughs> well, that's about the only thing that's going to be a very good job, because uh, trying to pronounce some of these is going to be littered with apologies on my pronunciation. Um, Samsonova was born in 1947 in use. You use her Krasnoyarsk Krail. Uh, she was known as the Granny Ripper and Baba Yaga. Side note, I had a Baba when I, I, when I was younger. I remember uh, a lot of kids when I was growing up that that was the how, how they referred to their grand, grandmother was mm -hmm. Baba. Yep. <clears throat> Um, uh, she is a Russian serial killer who was arrested in July of 2015 on suspicion of committing two murders with extreme cruelty. She supposedly suffers from schizophrenia and was previously hospitalized three times in psychiatric hospitals. Um, so a little bit, uh, 
about her. Um, after graduating from high school, she arrived in Moscow and entered the Moscow State Linguisti Linguistic <laughs> University. Linguini University. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not even what you did. I'm sorry. No, but I, I like it. <laughs> um, after graduating, she moved to St. Petersburg, where she married Alexei Samsonova. Uh, Samsonov, sorry. In 1971, she and her husband settled in their newly built panel house, number four, on Dimitrov Street. For some time, she worked for in tourist travel agency, in particular in the Grand Hotel Europe. The amount of work experience Samsonova gathered at the time of her retirement was 16 years. So she worked there for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, in 2000, Samsonova's husband disappeared. She supposedly killed him and got rid of the body. She appealed to the police, but subsequent searches yielded nothing. Fifteen years later, in April 2015, she turned towards the authorities again. This time to the investigative unit of the Prusensky District in St. Petersburg giving a statement about her spouse's disappearance. After her husband's disappearance, Samsonova began renting out a room in her apartment. According to investigators, on September 6, 2003, during a quarrel, she killed her tenant. He was a 44-year-old resident from Norilsk. She then dismembered his corpse and disposed of it on the street. <coughs> Okay, that was in what year? Uh, that was in 2003. Okay, so... Alright. Yeah, it was just like, how did an old lady kill a 44-year-old man? But I guess that was like 16, 17 years ago, so... Yeah. She would have been considerably younger. In March 2015... Samsonova met 79-year-old Valentina Nikolaevna Alnova. Alanova. I completely apologize for the pronunciation of these names. They are hard. Um, who also lived on Dimitrov Street. Uh, a friend of the two asked Alanova to shelter Samsonova for a time due to the fact that Samsonova's apartment was being renovated, to which Olanova agreed. Samsonova lived in Olanova's apartment for several months, helping her with housework. She began to like living in the apartment and wanting to stay there for longer and refusing to move out. Over time, the relationship between the two deteriorated and Olanova eventually asked Samsonova to leave. Um, after another conflict, she decided to poison Olanova. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, like, she poisoned a 79-year-old woman. Maybe she poisoned the other guy, too. Like, maybe that's kind of her... Yeah. Her ammo of how she's doing it. I guess my default 
idea on murdering someone is attacking them with a knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of other ways somebody can kill someone. So, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I lost where I was there. Uh, Samsonova traveled to Pushkin, where she managed to persuade a pharmacist to sell her a prescription drug, Phenazepam. Upon returning to the city, she bought an Oliver salad. An of, Oliver salad? Yeah. Okay. Is that I, Oliver? Olive, Olivier? Okay, so I looked it up. And this salad, although I'm not certain how you say it, it <coughs> is a traditional salad dish in Russian cuisine, which is also popular in other post-Soviet countries, many... European countries, etc. And its main ingredients, it says, are potatoes, vegetables, eggs, meat, and mayonnaise. And that kind of looks like a potato salad. I was just going to gonna say, that sounds exactly like a potato salad, but it's got meat in it. Yeah, because we don't traditionally put meat in ours, but everything else kind of looks like... Why don't we, though? Really? Just just, a, just a, a quick question there. Why don't we put meat in our potato salads? That's I wonder what kind of meat they're putting in there. I don't know. The one I look... This looks kind of like ham, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That'd be good. Because ham in a macaroni salad. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> okay. Well, interesting. We That's... learned something about a Russian dish. Yeah. And it sounds like it'd be very easy to make. We could make it one time and call it a, a Russian Olivier salad and look fairly cultured, you know? Yes. We did it. <laughs> um... So anyway, this uh, Olivier salad was one of Olinova's favorite dishes. So Samsonova bought it to give to her. But she also put the pills that she got from the pharmacist in the salad and gave it to the unsuspecting woman. Samsonova later found Olinova's body lying on the kitchen floor on the night of July 23rd and proceeded to dismember it with two knives and a saw. Firstly, sawing off the victim's head, then she sawed the body in half, and then using the knives, she sheared it into pieces. So, yuck. Uh, yeah, yuck and yikes as yeah. well. Um, to take it, to take out all the bags outside of the apartment, she had to go outside and return several times, and Samsonova even left other parts of the body scattered around the house. That's, that's unsettling to me. Yeah. All of it is, but that part is a really odd tidbit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, being able to just kill someone in general is unsettling. Being able to kill them and cut them into pieces makes it more unsettling. But to also just leave some of the pieces laying around and not be bothered oh, man. is, oof. Um, on, the evening, uh, on the evening of July 26, Olinov's decapitated body with several limbs wrapped in a bathroom curtain was found near a pond located uh, house number 10 on Dimitrov Street. The package initially didn't attract any attention for several days until a local resident took an interest in its contents. Uh, that must have been a shocking discovery. Oh, yeah. Uh, I couldn't imagine 
finding that, like just seeing a sh uh, shower curtain kind of wrapped up and, you know, you're like, oh, something's in that. What's in there? Yeah, I feel so bad for victims that, all victims really, I feel bad for, but you know, like the ones that get dumped like garbage. Yeah. You know, that's just, it also adds another level of depravity. Depravity. Yeah. Yeah. To it because, I mean, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, the identity of the deceased was established on July 27th after a survey of apartment residents. When they knocked on Olenov's apartment, Samsonova opened the door to the authorities. Having entered inside, police officers found traces of blood in the bathroom and also fastening uh, fastenings uh, from the torn-off curtain. Oh. After this, the pens pensioner was immediately arrested. Investigation on July 29th, 2015, Samsonova was brought to the F Frunze District Court in St. Petersburg. Apologies if I, I said that wrong. I'm, I, Frunze, maybe Frunze? I don't know. I can't help you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, You're doing a good job. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, so she was brought to the District Court of St. Petersburg anyway, um, with the court issuing an order to detain her. She was forced to take a forensic psychiatric exam, and on November 26, 2015, the results determined that she was a danger to society and herself and therefore was placed on a specialized, sorry, in a specialized institution until the end of the investigation. In December 2015, Samsonova was sent for compulsory psychiatric treatment in a specialized hospital in Kazan. She is being investigated in connection to a total of 14 murders. Oh. According to media reports, police found a diary which contained details of some of the murders. One entry, translated from Russian to English, read, I killed my tenant, Volodya. Cut him into pieces in the bathroom with a knife and put the pieces of his body in plastic bags and threw them away in different parts of the Fruzinski district. That lady has some real issues. Yeah. The fact that she was even documenting it too, like she's keeping an active diary of what she did, um, how she did it. And um, some of what I was reading about this, uh, there's also claims that she was cannibalizing some of these victims as well. Yeah, that's not surprising to me because a lot of the people that like to cut up the bodies are doing other things with them. Yeah. I, I honestly though, like, I can't, like, I actually, I can't imagine eating a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, yeah. Just the jump to squirrel is what? But like eating another human is just like on a different planet to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, an outrageous thought um, that there's actually 
people that do that and and enjoy it and yeah that's uh, a bit of a mind blower that one cannibalism <clears throat> excuse me so um yeah crazy 68 yeah. year old woman senior citizen possibly guilty of 14 different murders her age didn't slow her down. From, no. I guess that's a testament to the fact that if you're a psychopath, you your urges probably don't stop. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, having, like being diagnosed with schizophrenia, if she's not taken any medication for that, I imagine that's something that uh, continues to get worse with age yeah and i mean who knows if dementia setting like who knows really but but yeah it's just it's crazy it's you never hear about a serial killer that's a senior citizen like that's one of the big things i found really interesting about this story and that um it wasn't just like one person she killed um She's very, it, it said also that she is suspected in, obviously, the disappearance of her husband. Like, she yep. killed him. Um, and I could I could see that one in an older age thing. A, a, a man or a woman killed their spouse. But to actually be classified as a serial killer in your senior years yep. is just, uh, I, I found that really interesting. I agree. And I do, I find... It interesting as well on top of it that she was a female who chopped up bodies. Because you don't hear a lot of, about a female serial killer yeah. who's doing stuff like that. Right? Yeah, so. exactly. That that in general you don't really hear about. But then hearing about uh, uh, an elderly lady that's doing it. So the next one is about a fella... Uh, named Issei Sagawa. Um, he was born in 1949. He is also known as Pang or the Kobe Cannibal. Um, he is a Japanese murderer, cannibal, and necrophile, known for the killing of Rene Hartevelt in Paris in 1981. Sagawa murdered Hartevelt, then mutilated, cannibalized, and had sex with her corpse over several days. Sagawa was arrested, but released after two years of pre-trial detention upon being found legally insane and deported to Japan. Uh, he was released? Yeah. This is when every one of our listeners just gasped. <gasps> yeah, he was like guilty of these crimes and released because um being found legally insane and getting deported to back to Japan um Sagawa's crimes his release due to a legal technicality and his post-release celebrity in Japan led to international publicity now truthfully I've never heard of this at all until no, today. No. Um, but 
the story, yeah, it gets a little interesting because uh, he really, he did two years of pre-trial pre detention, but that's all he did. And, uh, and that. So, um, Issei Sagawa was born on April 26, 1949 in Kobe, Hyogo Prefecture to wealthy parents. Sagawa's father, Akira Sagawa, was a businessman who had served as president of Kurita Water Industries, and his grandfather had been an editor for the Asahi Shimbun. Sagawa was born prematurely and reportedly small enough that he could fit in the palm of his father's hand and immediately developed enteritis, a disease of the small intestine. Sagawa eventually recovered after several injections of potassium and calcium in saline. Sagawa's fragile health and introverted personality, personality led to him developing a strong interest in literature. Sagawa attended schools in Kamakura, Kanagawa Prefecture, where he first experienced cannibalistic desires while in the first grade after seeing a male's thigh. Oh, man. Yeah, so that started really <clears throat> young, and just seeing the thigh is enough to... Yeah, that's, that's weird. In a 2001 inter er, 2011 interview with Vice, Sagawa reported that as a youth, he partook in bestiality with his dog and experienced cannibalistic desires for women. Oh, man. Yee. Gross. Um, Sagawa attended... <laughs> uh, I don't mean to laugh. Um, my, I'm guessing it's called Waco University. But my first interpretation of that was Wacko University, and I'm I'm not trying to make silly, stupid jokes. It just was funny in my head for a sec. It would be fitting, though. Yeah, that's why person. it was funny. Yes. <laughs> um, Waco University and completed a master's degree in English literature at Kwanzai Gakuen University. At the age of 24, while attending Waco University in Tokyo, Sagawa followed a tall German woman home, then broke into her apartment while she was sleeping. Sagawa's intent was to cannibalize her by slicing off part of her buttocks and sneaking away with a small part of her flesh, but awoke and Sagawa claims pushed him to the ground. Sagawa was captured by police and charged with attempted rape, and did not confess his true intentions to authorities. Sagawa's charges of attempted rape were dropped when his father paid a settlement to the victim. In 1977, at the age of 27... Okay, so before I go on... So another crime he got charged with, but did no real time for at all. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Good point. Um, in 1977, at the age of 27, Sagawa moved to France to pursue a PhD in literature at the Sorbonne in Paris. Sagawa has said that while residing in Paris, almost every night, this is quotes by him, sorry, almost every night, I would bring a prostitute home and then try to shoot them, 
but for some reason my fingers froze up and I couldn't pull the trigger. Uh, okay. That's weird to yeah. say, too. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder what wasn't letting him do it. I'm glad he didn't. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But um, on June 11th, 1981, Sagawa, then 32, invited his Sorbonne classmate, Rene Hartevelt, a Dutch woman, to dinner at his apartment at 10 Rue... Erlanger, oh, sorry, that's the uh, the end of the name there. T uh, the apartment at Ten Rue Erlanger. Under the pretext of translating poetry for a school assignment, Sagawa planned to kill and eat her. Having selected her for her health and beauty characteristics, he felt he lacked. Sagawa considered himself weak, ugly, and small. He was four foot nine inches tall and claims he wanted to absorb her energy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's got, I, I would say, a definite like mental issue. Um, she, she was 25 years old and 5'10. After Hartevelt arrived, she began reading poetry at a desk with her back to Sagawa when he shot her in the neck with a rifle. Sagawa said he fainted after the shock of shooting her, but awoke with the realization that he had to carry out his plan. Sagawa had sex with her corpse, but he could not bite into her skin because his teeth were not sharp enough, so he left the apartment and purchased a butcher knife. Sagawa consumed various parts of Hartevelt's body, eating most of her breasts and face, either raw or cooked, while saving other parts in his refrigerator. Yuck. <clears throat> yeah. That's... I'm not even sure what to say. Um, Sagawa also took photographs of Hartevelt's body at each eating stage. Sagawa then attempted to dump the remains of Hartevelt's corpse in a lake in the Bois de Boulogne. I probably said that very wrong. Uh, carrying her dismembered body parts in two suitcases, but was caught in the act and arrested by French police. Oh, I'm glad he got caught in the act and couldn't do that to anyone else. I'm just sad that he was able to do that, what he did. Yeah. Yeah, that's super brutal and heinous and disrespectful to do to anybody. Yeah. Uh, Sagawa's wealthy father provided a lawyer for his defense. And after being held for two years awaiting trial, Sagawa was found legally insane and unfit to stand trial by the French judge. Uh, Jean-Louis... I'm not even going to attempt the last name on that one. Um, who ordered him held indefinitely in a mental institution. After a visit by the author Inuhiko Yamota, Sagawa's account of his kill was published in Japan under the title In the Fog. Um, 
Sagawa's subsequent publicity and macabre celebrity likely contributed to the French authorities' decision to deport him to Japan, where he was immediately committed to Matsuzawa Hospital in Tokyo. His examining psychologists all declared him sane and found sexual perversion was his sole motivation for murder. <clears throat> Yikes. As the charges against Sagawa in France had been dropped, the French court documents were sealed and were not released to Japanese authorities. Consequently, Sagawa could not legally be detained in Japan. So he, again, is oh, free. Man. So in total, he spent four years in a detention center, basically awaiting trials, and that's all he's really served. Um... Well, and the, I mean, he did spend time in a mental institution until he was deported, but, uh, yeah, either way, for the crimes he's done, it's, the crime he's done is, that's absolutely insane. Sagawa checked himself out of the hospital on August 12th, 1986, and has subsequently remained free since that day. That is... Not okay. No, not at all. Uh, Sagawa's continued freedom has been widely criticized, rightfully so. Uh, between 1986 and 1997, Sagawa was frequently invited to be a guest speaker and commentator. In 1992, Sagawa appeared in Hisa Hiseyasu Sato's exploitation film <laughs> man um yuakizuma chijakuzimi uh which basically means unfaithful wife shameful torture as a sadosexual voyeur <clears throat> excuse me sagawa has written books about the murder he committed as well as shonen a a book on the 1997 Kobe Child Murders. Sagawa also... Uh, Sagawa has also written restaurant reviews for the Japanese magazine Spa. Sagawa can no longer find publishers for his writing, and he has struggled to find employment. Well, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a well-deserved shitty part yeah. of life there for him. Yeah, absolutely. The f the fact that he was able to do any of that stuff is mind-boggling to me. Um, Sagawa was nearly accepted by a French language school because the manager was impressed by his courage in using his real name. It was the employee's protests, uh, the reason that he did, got rejected. Oh, man. So... That's good that those employees protested that. Uh, in 2005, Sagawa's parents died and was um, Sagawa himself was prevented from attending their funeral, but repaid their creditors and moved into public housing. Sagawa received welfare benefit, benefits for a time. 
In an interview with Vice Magazine in 2011, Sagawa said that being forced to make a living while being known as a murderer and cannibal was a terrible punishment. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a terrible punishment? Yeah, being known as a, a murderer and a cannibal was, a, was his terrible punishment. Ugh. In 2013, Sagawa was hospitalized from a cerebral infection, which permanently damaged his nervous system, and since being released, has been under the full-time care of his brother. <clears throat> Excuse me. His poor brother. Yeah. Because... I would be fairly certain his brother doesn't want much to do with him, too. I'm guessing, right? So. Yeah. I would think so, but I am actually not sure. Maybe the culture is no matter what, family's family. I don't know. That could uh, that but, could be true, too. But truthfully, um, yeah, there, there's to me, there's a line. Yeah. If I had a brother that was like that, uh, you... you you sowed your own future. I'm not a part of that. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, so Sagawa has been in a, a few different things, um, a few documentaries uh, over the years. There's one called Cannibal Superstar. Um, Excuse Me for Living. The Cannibal That Walked Free. Interview with a Cannibal. Um, a 1986 short film by... Olivier Smolders, uh, Adoration uh, is the name of it. It's based on Sagawa's story. Um, and so this was an interesting one, actually, when I read this, because this is a song on the Rolling Stones' 1983 album, Uncover, called Too Much Blood. Undercover? Oh, yes, Undercover. Oh, it's it's my eyes now. <laughs> it was my tongue before, now it's my eyes. Um, yes, sorry. Their 1983 album, Undercover, a song called Too Much Blood, is about Sagawa and violence in the media. His crime also inspired The Strangler's 1981 song, La Folie. The noise black metal band Gnaw Their Tongues also released an EP titled Essay Sagawa in 2006. Uh, Sagawa's crimes and his later career as an actor were discussed in the 2015 documentary Fear Itself by filmmaker Charlie Lynn, which I'd actually like to look that up and maybe check that one out. Yeah, I was going to say that might be interesting to watch a documentary of. I don't, I'd rather watch a documentary by someone on the outside instead of watching something that they actually invited him to be part of. Because yeah. I, I don't want to contribute to him prospering in any way because of his crimes. Yeah, but absolutely. An outsider's documentary on him would be interesting to watch. Yeah, I completely agree. So yeah, that's... A crazy, crazy story out of Japan. Yeah. So I, I was almost wondering maybe in Japan and maybe other parts of the world, maybe he's very infamous like like our Ted Bundy's or our Jeffrey Dahmer's over here. Like very well known, right? Yeah. Um, 
Which is interesting because I tend to think of just North American killers of uh, being infamous and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's generally, I would say, probably the same idea as most of us. Um, yeah. I think it's a bit interesting, too, that... Um, interesting, but not like a think it's a good thing but he almost had a type of celebrity status yeah from this and um i don't think he deserves it by any means but i think it's interesting that that actually happened yeah that's unfortunate that it happened like that yeah exactly <clears throat> but excuse me but still i feel like it's disappointing he's not in jail. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that he really served no time at all. His biggest complaint was being labeled a uh, murderer and cannibal. That was the terrible punishment. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, the final uh, crime article I had was... This one's out of the States. Uh, this one's out of the States, and it's about a lady named Bobby Jo Stinnett. Um, she was born December 4th, 1981, and lived till December 16th, 2004. She was a 23-year-old American pregnant woman um, found murdered in her home in Skidmore, Missouri. The accused, Lisa M. Montgomery, then 36, was convicted of strangling Strinette from behind and then removing the woman's unborn child eight months into gestation from her womb. That's absolutely brutal. That's a nightmare. Yeah. I can't believe that somebody would do that. Um, yeah. Uh, Bobby Jo Stinnette was eight months pregnant with her first child and... Her husband ran a dog breeding business from their residence. Montgomery met, met uh, Stinnett online in a rat terrier ch chat room called Ratter Chatter. It is known that Stinnett was expecting the, the arrival in Skidmore, Missouri of prospective buyers for a terrier at about the time of her murder. Montgomery told Stinnett that she too was pregnant leading to the two women chatting online and exchanging emails about their pregnancies. Additionally, there was no sign of forced entry. Authorities now believe that Montgomery, posing as customer Darlene Fisher, arranged to visit Stinnett's house on that day. On December 16, 2004, Montgomery entered the house, strangled Stinnett, and cut the premature infant from her womb. It was speculated that Montgomery's motivation stemmed from a miscarriage she may have suffered and subsequently concealed from her family. How or whether Montgomery had received, uh, sorry, had recently become pregnant is unclear. Montgomery's former husband has since told authorities that she underwent a tubal ligation in 1990 and that she had a history of falsely telling acquaintances that she was pregnant. Uh. That's brutal in a lot of ways there, like... Yeah. 
I mean, having your tubes tied gives you almost zero possibility of being pregnant. Yeah. And then walking around telling people you're pregnant, like... Ugh. I... It's... I don't know. It's... Just a super sensitive topic for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. And... You know, to go to the measures of... Pretending that you're also pregnant and befriending someone so that you can cut the baby out of their belly, like... Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's... that's brutal. It really is. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Stanette... So this is another brutal part here. Uh, Stanette was discovered by her mother, Becky Harper, in a pool of blood about an hour after the assault. Harper immediately called 911. Uh, Harper described the wounds inflicted upon her daughter as appearing as if her stomach had exploded. Oh my god. Ugh. Yeah. Did yeah, you... I you know what though? That would make sense though cuz if you're walking in on a scene like that and you don't know what actually happened. Yeah. Oh man. I couldn't imagine like that would actually leave my mental state altered probably for the rest of my life oh, yeah. if I walked in and seen that on like if I had a daughter and that just or like really any family member just seeing that mm -hmm. what a horrific scene uh, attempts by paramedics to revive Stinette were unsuccessful and she was pronounced dead at St. Francis Hospital in Maryville the next day December 17th 2004 Montgomery was arrested at her farmhouse in Melvern, Kansas, where the newborn had been claimed as her own was recovered. So the baby lived. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really good. Yeah, that is really good. Um, the baby was found safe and unharmed. Uh, the Dale baby was placed in the custody of her father. The quick recovery and capture was attributed to in part the use of forensic computer investigation, which tracked Montgomery and Stanette's online communication with one another. Both bred rat ter uh, terriers and may have attended dog shows together. The investigation was also aided by the issuance of an Amber Alert to enlist the public's health. DNA testing to confirm the infant's identity and the enormous amount of media attention. Um, so Lisa Montgomery's criminal charge, kidnapping resulting in death. Um, so this is some information about Lisa Montgomery now and, um, just kind of some of her backstory <clears throat> and then the trial. And that so Lisa Montgomery was born February 27th, 1968, and resided in Melvern, Kansas at the time of the murder. She was raised in a chaotic home where she was raped by her stepfather for many years. She sought sorry, uh she sought escape mentally by drinking alcohol. When Montgomery was 14, her mother discovered the abuse but reacted by threatening her daughter with a gun. She tried to escape the situation by marrying at the age of 18, but both this marriage and a second marriage resulted in further abuse. 
Montgomery had four children until 1990 when she underwent a tubal ligation. Montgomery falsely claimed to be pregnant several times after the procedure, according to both her first and second spouses. Montgomery was charged with the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death, a crime established by the Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932 and described in Title 18 of the United States Code. If convicted, she faced a sentence of life imprisonment or the death penalty. At a pretrial hearing, a neuropsychologist testified that head injuries which Montgomery had sustained some years before could have damaged the part of the brain which controls aggression. During her trial in federal court, her defense attorneys, led by Frederick Duchart, uh, I'm sure that's Duchart, um, asserted that she had pseudocysis. Uh, I may have pronounced that wrong, but it's a mental condition that a woman that causes a woman to falsely believe. Excuse me, <laughs> I just involuntarily swallowed. <laughs> We're in I'm the middle sorry. of talking. Um, I watched it. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, it's a mental condition that causes a woman to falsely believe she is pregnant and exhibit outward signs of pregnancy. According to the Guardian, Duchart attempted to follow this line of defense only one week before the trial began, after being forced to abandon a contradictory argument that Stinnett was murdered by Montgomery's brother, Tommy, who had an alibi. As a result, Montgomery's family refused to cooperate with Duchart and described her unfavorable background to the jury. Uh, V.S. Uh, Rama Chandran and M.D. William Logan gave expert testimony that Montgomery had pseudocysis in addition to depression, borderline personality disorder, and PTSD. Ramachadran testified that Montgomery's stories about her actions fluctuated because her delusional state fluctuated and that she was unable to appreciate the nature and quality of her acts. Both federal prosecutor Roseanne Ketchmark and the opposing expert witness forensic psychiatrist uh, Park Dietz disagreed strongly with the diagnosis of pseudocysis. On October 22, 2007, jurors found Montgomery guilty. On October 26, the jury recommended a death sentence. Judge Gary A. Fenner formally sentenced Montgomery to death. On April 4, 2008, a judge upheld the jury's recommendation for death. However, Duchart's aforementioned pseudocysis defense, Montgomery's unfavorable background, and separate diagnoses of mental illness were not fully revealed to the jury until after her conviction. By her appeals team. This led critics, including the Guardian journalist David Rose, to argue that Duchart provided an incompetent legal defense for Montgomery. Judge Fenner required Duchart to be cross-examined in November 2016. Duchart rejected all criticism and defended his conduct. On March 19, 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Montgomery's 
partition, uh, petition, sorry. Um, Montgomery, who is registered for the Federal Bureau of Prisons under number 11072-031, was, as of 2017, incarcerated at Federal Medical Center Carswell in Fort Worth. Uh, Fort Worth, Texas, sorry, where she will remain indefinitely. She is currently the only woman with a federal death, sen death sentence <laughs> incarcerated <laughs> at this facility. I said death. You did. <laughs> Experts who examined Montgomery post-conviction concluded that by the time of her crime, she had long been living with psychosis, bipolar disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorders. Montgomery falsely claimed to be pregnant several times after tubal ligation. She was often disassociated from reality and had permanent brain damage from numerous beatings at the hands of her parents and spouses. So, yeah, that's, that's a crazy story. That's a crazy story. I find it sad that she grew up the way she did and stuff. And the things that happened to her are very unfortunate. However, she had her shit together enough to basically trick a lady on the internet to meet up with, well, you know, to make some sort of meeting. Yeah. Like, she had her shit together enough to do that and pull it off, so... Yeah, exactly. And she worked a, a complete lie about being pregnant and enough to even have discussions yeah. with the other lady and... And that, so, I mean, she, she wasn't incompetent and I, I think that shows though, because she wasn't regarded as criminally or judged as criminally insane and not responsible for her actions. Like she's going to see the death penalty. Um, I thought it said she's in a hospital um, in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. But it says that that's where she'll re remain indefinitely, and she is also the only woman with a federal death sentence incarcerated at that facility. Oh, okay. I thought for some reason they removed the death penalty. No, thankfully. Because truthfully, I, I think that one is a pretty fitting oh, yeah. um, punishment for the crime. Um, it does also say right at the end here... Um, that this case has been described in books, uh, Baby Be Mine by author Diane Fanning and Murder in the Heartland by M. William Phelps. This case was featured on Deadly Women's episode, Fatal Obsession. The case was also featured in the fifth episode of documentary, No One Saw a Thing, that first aired on the Sundance Channel in August 29th of 2019. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, so that's three fairly interesting, very brutal crimes. Yeah. One from the neighbors down south and a couple from the other side of the world to us. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so hopefully you guys found that interesting and... Uh, well, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, I don't want to, I don't want to forget and make mention, um, our other favorite podcast, Little Nerdy. What do you mean by our other favorite podcast? Are you 
saying that your podcast is your favorite and then your other one is that one? <laughs> no, no. Even though <laughs> I do really love our podcast, um, I've got a couple really, really good ones that are up on my list of favorites. But yeah, but Little Nerdy is always one of my top choices mm -hmm. and you guys should definitely check them out. They're on Facebook. Yep. Um, they're on every major platform. You can hear them wherever you listen to your podcast at. Mm -hmm. And Michelle and Owen do a great job explaining some, uh, let's say, nerdology on um, video games, books, movies. <laughs> That's sort of the way you're looking at me. I was like, what? <clears throat> um, no, it's really true. And uh, history, too. Yep. I've listened to some good ones about history and... Um, one Friday a month, they do their debate without hate. Yep. So they'll just bring up like everyday things. And often they have opposing uh, sides about how to do something. Yep. Uh, for example, this isn't one that they've done. But um, yesterday I came to the realization that you as my partner, you have to eat your fries first completely and then you will eat your hamburger and you do it every time yeah yeah if i if we ever order takeout f excuse me fries first every time i, I gotta eat them because they're they're that's when they're they're freshest and often from a fast food joint you don't even get like the freshest fries so old cold stale fries that happen after i've eaten my burger nah I got to get them in quick. <laughs> uh, my my mouth likes a mix and match of burgers and fries throughout the whole meal. Um, I feel like that kind of does justice to the meal a little better, but yeah. I'm just, I'm teasing you. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. It's kind of like, I like to eat my fries as my main course and then my dessert is the nice greasy burger. <laughs> I, I watch you dip just about every bite of your hamburger into ketchup every time too. Oh yeah, it's so good. Which I'm not the biggest fan of, but <laughs> John has to be in oversaturated flavor country all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but yes. Um, yeah, check out Little Nerdy. They release a new episode every Tuesday and they got their Debate Without Hate one Friday a month. So hit them up. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us, guys. We hope you enjoyed it, found it interesting. Uh, it was brutal and dark. So, yeah, join us. Oh. Ne next week's is a topic that I chose. Yeah. It's brutal and gruesome, too. So Yeah, it's very exciting. Stay tuned. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, join us for the, the next episode on Monday for some podcast, podcast and chill. chill.